Now that David and his men have been strengthened, his army goes on the offensive against the rebellious son, Absalom. This is the 39th sermon in the series Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our roll reading coming from Samuel chapter 18, Samuel chapter 18, the first 17 verses, 2 Samuel 18 as we move into chapter 18, 2 Samuel 18, 1 through 17, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, and David numbered the people that were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent forth the third part of the people under the hand of Joab and a third part under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said unto the people, I will surely go forth with you myself also. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth, for if we flee away, they will not care for us. Neither if half of us die, will they care for us. But now thou art worth 10,000 of us, therefore now it is better that thou succor us out of the city. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best, I will do. And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king commanded Job and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. So the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was in the wood of Ephraim, where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was there a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men, for the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country, and the wood devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick bough of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. And a certain man saw it, and told Joab, and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. And Joab said unto the man that told him, And behold, thou sawest him, And why didst thou not smite him there to the ground? And I would have given thee ten shekels of silver and a girdle. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son? For in our hearing the king charged thee and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware that none touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I should have wrought falsehood against mine own life. For there is no matter hid from the king, and thou thyself would have had set thyself against me. Then said Joab, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And ten young men that bare Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing after Israel. For Job held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood, and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, every one to his tent. Paul writing to the church at Galatia, Galatians in chapter 3, 
Galatians chapter 3, one verse only this morning, one verse only, verse 13. By the same Spirit, the Apostle writes, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but God's word stands forever, and by his word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now that David and his company is well rested, nourished, and encouraged, he is ready to meet the challenge of Absalom, his son, head on. The death of Ahithophel had to impact the young man. He had to be impacting that suicide death of Ahithophel had to impact the resolve of Absalom. And yet, even though it would impact the man, he's still unrelenting in his pursuit of the kingdom. But by the grace of God and the kindness of his supporters, David is now ready for battle. We see this in verse 1, and David numbered the people, so he's encouraged, he's ready, he's strengthened, and now he's going to set forth himself to number the people. And David numbered the people that were with him, and he set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Now consider the steps of his offensive. First, David numbers the people. He numbers his army. This was and it is still an important step since as a general of the armed forces, he had to know what he was dealing with. David had to know who he was dealing with and what he was dealing with in his own company. He had to know who was skilled, who was not skilled. He had to tally the number of his troops so that he could dispatch them into their area of expertise without spreading them too thinly. So this was a very, very important thing that he had to do. Now note this, that the numbering of the troops of of the army was a commanded tactic in order to assess strategies. In other words, the numbering of the troops was not a sin. This is very important for us In the future, when we consider David once again, later on, numbering the troops of Israel. The numbering of the troops was no sin. This was a commanded strategy as far back as during the days of Moses and Aaron that they had to, by commandment, number the troops to understand who they were dealing with. Secondly, David then chooses his leadership team. In David's situation, he needed to know who his leadership team was. And this was just good planning. He couldn't just pick anyone. He had to vet them very carefully since his entire existence depended on who his leadership team was. It also was about the future of the kingdom. If he chose the wrong people to lead the army, that would impact the entire future of the kingdom of God. So the question is, what was David looking for when he sought out his captain of thousands and captain of hundreds. What were some of the leadership qualifications David looked for? Because this was a critical move on his part. Without skilled and seasoned leaders, the offensive would be unsuccessful. And this is what every offensive kingdom purpose group must have. Seasoned leadership, experienced leadership, or at least those who are willing to be trained as godly leaders. But who were they? Who were these men? Well, firstly... They had to be loyal first to God and then to the king, provided that the king was a righteous king. Secondly, they had to be proven men of valor. In other words, they had to have a testimony 
a long-standing track record that was both measurable and consistent. Couldn't be people of fit and starts. Thirdly, they had to be skilled in their craft. They couldn't just be beginners. They couldn't be novices. Number four, they were willing to go out of their way. In other words, they were willing to go out of their comfort zone to defend the kingdom of God that God had given to David. They weren't just saying, well, you know, this is outside of my comfort zone. This is not convenient for me. I don't want any part of it. No, they were willing to do what it took to defend the kingdom of God. Fifth, and this is an important point, they had to have had the discernment to be able to choose the right cause to defend. These men knew that the right cause was David, not Absalom. They had to have that discernment. Whenever we make a choice of our loyalties, we need to ask, who are we going to serve? God or man? God or our own intentions? These men had to be able to discern between right and wrong. What side that they should be on? What was the right cause to defend? Was it God's cause for David or Absalom's cause for the rebellion? Because if they lacked biblical integrity and biblical discretion and discernment, they would have chosen Absalom. But they chose David. And this skill of discernment, and that is really where things really come down to it. Discernment. We are to be able to discern. That's wrong. That's right. And it boggles my mind when church folk cannot even discern between what God is pleased with and what God is not pleased with. So this discernment is essential in everyday life, but especially when choosing a leader and a cause to defend. Now, some people are choosing causes to defend, and you have to ask the question, why? Is that God's cause? So we need to have careful discernment. David himself, he had to exhibit discernment abilities. David was only able to choose these men as a result of his own discerning abilities. And this would imply that he knew these men. He knew who they were. He knew the state of his flock. He wasn't a hireling. He was a shepherd. He knew what he was dealing with. But there was another aspect of battle that had to take place if the results were to be successful. God had instructed Moses and Aaron that before anyone out to battle, before people, these men who were vetted, or who would be vetted, went out to battle, they had to go through a very rigorous examination. Note the biblical requirements for each of the military men that were going to go into battle, that were going to fight. Deuteronomy chapter 20, we read this in following. And when thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, that's what David was about to do. He's going to go out to battle. He's going to fight the enemy. That enemy, unfortunately, sorrowfully, was his own son. But he's going out to fight the enemy. So God is telling this. When you are ready to go out to fight the enemy, and you see horses and chariots and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them. For the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. So you're not to be afraid. You have to trust God. And it shall be, when you are come nigh unto the battle, before you go into the battle, the priest shall approach and speak unto the people. So the minister was there, going to speak to the army before anyone else. It was God's representative that was going to speak to the army. And shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel. 
Ye approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. And then the officers step up, and the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that hath built a new house and hath not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And what man is he that hath planted a vineyard and hath not eaten of it? Let him also go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And it shall be, when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people, that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. So at that point, they're going to number the people. They're going to figure out who it is that is going to go into the battle. They're going to number the people, and then they're going to send them out. And so men who were afraid, or had newly married with new family obligations were disqualified. In addition to these men, God tells Moses that the men who had not enjoyed the fruit of their labors also had to refrain from entering into the battle. It seems that in the case of David, at least the majority of these men were qualified. And yet, David numbers them to make absolutely sure that each of his warriors were biblically qualified, otherwise the battle would not go well for them. And so God brings a period of rest and refreshment to David and his men in order so that they could regroup and plan their next offensive strategy. Herein we see how, as a result of being refreshed, David is able to think clearly. You see, that's why refreshment is so important. That's why it's so important to to relax and to refresh and to be encouraged Because that enables us to think clearly, to plan clearly, to think strategically and tactically. And this is a lesson for all of God's people, no matter what position they are in. Because whenever we are weary, whenever we are worn, whenever we're tired or confused or even desperate, desperation is a great enemy. Because when we're desperate, we make all the wrong decisions. So whenever we're weary, worn, confused, or desperate, we cannot ever hope to think or plan clearly. There's no way that we can accomplish our responsibilities or even know where God is leading us when we're tired or confused or fearful. And this is true not only for military, church, or community leaders, but it's also very true for fathers and mothers, children, students, and single folk. We have to think clearly. So there's a time to work and there's a time to relax. There's a time to play, a time to work. There's always a time. But refreshment is important. If we're going to go into battle, we need to be fully refreshed. In order to function effectively, you need to get your rest and proper nourishment. Therefore, let me apply it to the Lord's Day. If you are not well rested on Saturday night, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you will be sleepy. You will be foggy. You will not be able to pay attention. You will be distracted here or distracted there. So we refresh ourselves before we go into battle, before we worship God. Because this is the army of God. This is where you're prepared for battle. So you need to come here refreshed. So it's very important to prepare the night before to come to the Lord's house. You just don't 
cavalier in and say, well, okay, I'm here now and I'll just be fine. No, you prepare. This is important. So in order to function effectively, you need to get your rest and proper nourishment. That's why before you come to church on Sunday, get up early, have a hearty protein-filled breakfast so you're not sleepy because you haven't eaten. You need your nourishment. So once these chosen men were assembled, now having been well-rested, vetted, and encouraged, David sends a third part of the people to fight under his war chief Joab, a third part under the hand of Abishai, his brother, and a third part under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. But unlike before, when David, remember when he relaxed upon his rooftop, when it was time for kings to go out to war, obviously he learned his lesson. David declares that he will go with them to battle. He's also going to go. And David set forth a third part of the people under Joab, Abishai, and of course, Ittai, and he said, I will surely go forth with you myself also. So this statement obviously shows that David must have learned his lesson. Notice, he doesn't make the same mistake he made when he tarried at Jerusalem, which brought all of his troubles upon him when he should have been out on the battlefield. And so he may have put things together at this point that actions have consequences. Decisions are critical to the future of men and nations because our decisions affect not only our future, but the future of others. Now consider the army's reaction. But the people answered, Thou shalt not go forth. No way are you going out with us, David. You are not going into the heat of the battle. Because if we are beaten, if we flee away, the enemy is not going to care for us. And if half of us die, they're not going to care for us. But you, David, You, the shepherd king, the giant killer, you, you are worth more than 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you stay out of the battle so that you can care for us if we are defeated. This is an incredible testimony. Because in the eyes of David's people, notice what they're saying. He's worth 10,000 of them. And they're not going to put him in harm's way. What they're actually saying is that they would rather sacrifice their very lives as long as David is safe so that he can aid in the people's escape if the army is beaten, killed, or captured. And so what we see here is both a love for David and a love for the people with this strategy of keeping David back. Now, the word sucker in verse in verse 3 just simply means to aid or protect. You will protect us. It's also interesting that the army is so confident that David, they have such confidence in David that he is able to protect the people if the need arises, since many of them were perhaps witnesses to David's cunning while under the assault of Saul. And so they give David charge over the rest of the people while the army meets Absalom head on. Now understanding what these men are saying, he's understanding the meaning behind their admonition. David, of course, concedes. And we read this in verse 4. And the king said unto them, What seemeth you best I will do? And the king stood by the gate side, and all the people came out by hundreds and by thousands. Now once once these particulars were sorted out, David tells Joab and the other war chiefs to be gentle with his son Absalom. And the king, before they go out to the battle, this is what he says. And the king commanded Joab and Abishai in Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. And notice this phrase, And all the people heard. Everyone heard this. It wasn't just Joab and Abishai and Ittai. 
Everyone heard this, and all the people heard when the king gave all the captains charge concerning Absalom. You think about that. You think about David's concern. You have a rebellious son, a horrible, wicked, murdering son, wanting to kill his own father, and yet David, deal gently with my son. Don't don't hurt him. Save him alive. Because David is Absalom's father. And that could never change. And as a father, as fathers, and you young men, someday you will understand. But as fathers, we have a soft spot for our sons, even for our daughters. In spite of Absalom's wickedness, David's natural response was deal gently with him. This was entirely natural. Because it would have been entirely unnatural not to have feelings for David's own flesh and blood. The request by the king should not be viewed, however, as a weakness, but rather as a strength, since it takes more strength to show mercy than to act vengefully. And even though Absalom has done a great evil, David is not seeking vengeance. Instead, he tells his generals to save him alive. And the scripture is careful to reveal that the command to go easy on Absalom was heard by everyone. So once the commandment is given, The battle begins. David's army then moves into the battlefield against Absalom and his army. Now, once the confrontation begins, Absalom's army seems to be no match. Remember, these men now in David's army, they were encouraged, they were strengthened, they were nourished, they they had their marching orders, God was with them, and Absalom's army, because they were pretty much fighting for a man, not for God, Absalom's army was no match for David's. And the scripture says that 20,000 of them were slain. And this shows how effective all of that encouragement that David and his men received was. And therefore, we should never, ever underestimate the power of encouragement. I can tell you, encouragement goes a long way, as does discouragement and the negative. So the people went out into the field against Israel And the battle was in the wood of Ephraim. It was in the forest. They're fighting in the forest now. Where the people of Israel were slain before the servants of David. And there was a great slaughter that day of 20,000 men. So the defeat of the rebellious Absalom was so great that the scripture tells us that not only were the men of Absalom's army defeated by David's army, but they were destroyed by the savagery of the forest. Now notice in verse 8, for the battle was there scattered over the face of all the country and the wood, the forest, the forest itself devoured more people that day than the sword. People were killed more by fighting in the forest than they were killed by someone killing them with a sword. Now, to be sure, Absalom's army outnumbered David's army. And yet, they were defeated with the help of God's orchestrating their defeat by the ravages of the forest. Now, we're not told how the forest destroyed them. We're not told exactly how the forest killed these men, but we can only assume that either there were wild beasts in the forest that killed them or that they were entangled in the dense brush And David's men were able to snare and kill them. We don't really know how this happened. All we know is God orchestrated that kind of a situation. Either way, once Absalom's men ran into the woods to escape David's army, they were killed. Now, observing the probable defeat of his army, Absalom takes to his mule 
again, a, a vague symbol of his desire to be the judge of Israel, because it's not so much a donkey, but a mule. He tries to run, but he's overtaken by some of David's army. And in an effort to escape, Absalom's head gets caught in a tree limb and his mule runs out from under him, leaving him hanging. And according to verse 14, he's hanging between heaven and earth. He must have been so stunned trying to get away that he's in a daze at this point. It has been surmised that in his haste to escape, he failed to see a low hanging limb, possibly a forked tree limb, and his head got caught in it making him dangle between heaven and earth. We read this in verse 9, And Absalom met the servants of David, and Absalom rode upon a mule, and the mule went under the thick bough of a great oak, and his head caught hold of the oak, and he was taken up between the heaven and the earth, and the mule that was under him went away. Now once he's hanging there, Joab is apprised of the situation by one of his men. Now note the man's recounting of the event in verse 10. And a certain man saw it and he told Joab and said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanged in an oak. Now this language seems to have a very curious connection to the law of God because Moses clarifies the situation as a condemnation for wickedness and rebellion. And he does this in Deuteronomy in chapter 21 verses 22 and 23. Notice, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be put to death, and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon a tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. So to be hanging in a tree is to be cursed of God. And then we see the same situation when Joshua defeated the five wicked kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmoth, Lachish, and Eglon, in addition to the king of Ai. We see this in Joshua 8.29 and Joshua 10.24 and following. And the king of Ai hanged on a tree until eventide. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near, and they put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, will be dismayed, be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward Joshua smote them, and slew them, and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until evening. We also saw how David hung Rechab and Bana for their claim that they killed Ishbosheth, Paul reiterates this connection in our New Covenant reading, this connection between hanging upon a tree and being cursed of God when writing to the Galatians. Now if we were to make the connection between hanging and cursing, it is then obvious that whenever a man hanged himself, it was from a tree. Where else would a man hang himself if not from a tree? That's the logical place. Ahithophel logically had to hang himself from a tree. The conspirators against King Ahasuerus were hanged on a tree. Haman, along with his ten sons, were hanged on wooden gallows. The scriptures say wooden gallows, that they, if they were built, they were made from tree wood, in the same way that the cross was made from a tree. And of course, Judas hanged himself. Where did he hang himself from? From a tree. Matthew chapter 27, verse 5. Now Absalom, David's son, the rebellious rebel 
is hanging from a tree, utterly defenseless and vulnerable, symbolically cursed of God because of his wickedness. The scripture makes this point to say that the mule which was under Absalom ran out from under him, possibly symbolizing that he had lost any hope of any kind of a judgeship over Israel since it was gained by fraud, rebellion, revolution, and hatred. He's also caught by his head, perhaps symbolizing that his rebellious and prideful head is also under the curse. Once Joab hears of Absalom's situation, he asks the question of the man who saw him caught in a tree. And he says, And why didst not thou smite him there to the ground? Because if you killed him, I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a battle girdle. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to give you money and a battle girdle, a girdle. And this this comment testifies of Joab's blatant refusal to honor the wishes of King David. He had no interest in keeping Absalom alive. Joab simply wants Absalom dead, and he would give a handsome reward to the man who executed the rebel. In fact, what Joab tells this man was a very great reward. Not only for the fact that it had a monetary fee associated with it, but Joab is telling this man that he was going to give him probably his own military belt which was actually, as the scriptures declare, a coat of armor. That was something that was very expensive, very, very worthy in battle. You needed a coat of armor because that in and of itself was valuable beyond money. And it may have meant that if Joab gave this coat of armor to this man, it would make him very special. It would put him in close company with Joab and the warriors. Adam Clark comments, he says, the military belt, this girdle, was the chief ornament of a soldier and was highly prized in all ancient nations. It was also a rich present from one chieftain to another. Jonathan gave his to David as the highest pledge of his esteem and perpetual friendship. So Joab is is baiting this man. But note the response of the man. Even in light of such a hefty reward, he refuses citing the king's wishes that Absalom be saved alive. And we see this in verse 12. And the man said unto Joab, Though I should receive a thousand shekels of silver in mine hand, a thousand, ten times, uh, a thousand times of what you're telling me, in mine hand, yet would I not put forth mine hand against the king's son, because we heard this. The king charged you and Abishai and Ittai that no one would touch this young man. Notice verse 13. Otherwise I should have wrought falsehood against my own life, for there is no matter hid from the king. David would have killed me, but if I killed him, even you, notice, and thou thyself would have had set thyself against me. Joab is baiting the man. Now there's a few things here, a number of things to be considered by this remark. First of all, no amount of money would move the man to violate his loyalty to the king. The man was loyal. You cannot buy loyalty. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we loyal to our Lord Jesus Christ, or will we be baited as well and then fall under it? So this man does not refer to Absalom as the rebel. That's also an interesting point. Or the deceitful or revolutionary aspect of Absalom, but rather he refers to Absalom as the king's son. He is empathizing with the king. This is the king's son. This is a natural affection by David. 
So he recognizes the bloodline and the sensitivity and the compassion that a father-son relationship has. Secondly, he then reminds Joab that everyone heard the king's instruction not to kill Absalom. He even names Joab and the other war chiefs that were in the hearing of David. They were told too what the king's wishes were. Thirdly, he then testifies that if he would violate the king's commandment, he would render falsehood against his own life. In other words, his life would be taken from him as a result of the violation of the king's explicit command. Fourth, he then tells Joab that nothing is hid from the king. They would find out who killed the son, which would put him in a very deadly position with David. And then finally he adds that Joab himself would know and that he would kill him for violating the king's commandment in order to protect himself from David's anger. This is a very astute observation. Now let's think about the situation. Why would Joab want this man to have killed Absalom? Well, obviously he didn't want to kill him himself because David then would be angry. But there are several possibilities as well. What we can know from this text and other passages here in this account for certain is that Joab wanted Absalom dead. As to why we can only surmise... Firstly, if Absalom was allowed to go free, he may then gather another army. And this time, because David would be that much older, this time he might be successful. Joab then would no longer be Israel's war chief. In fact, he may even lose his life for not siding with Absalom. In Joab's mind, the king's son had to die. Second possibility, if another man killed Absalom, it would exonerate Joab of the deed while at the same time doing exactly what Joab wanted to do. We know he wanted this since he offered such a great reward. Thirdly, and I think there's something very sinister here as we have already surmised, in Joab's mind, the man whom Joab wanted to kill Absalom also seemed to be aware of it, knowing the cunning devices of Joab, Joab was offering all of this reward, never intending on paying it because he was going to kill the guy who killed Absalom. So I believe Joab never really intended to give the reward. In desperation now, as a result of the man's refusing Joab's bribe, Joab then, in his desperation, takes matters into his own hands. Then said Joab, verse 14, in utter disgust, I may not tarry thus with thee. And he took three darts in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. I have no regard for you any longer. I have no time for you any longer. I have no use for you any longer. You are not willing to do what's necessary, so I'll do the dirty work. So he proceeds to assassinate the king's son himself, or at least wound him, mortally wound him, with three darts. And yet the darts don't actually take Absalom's life entirely. So Joab commands his armor bearers to finish off the king's son. We read this in verse 15. And ten young men that bear Joab's armor compassed about and smote Absalom and slew him. As a result of the king's son's death, Joab blows the trumpet of victory and takes Absalom's body and buries it in a manner that is fit for an enemy of God, the king and the nation. Verse 16 and 17, And Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing after Israel. For Joab held back the people and took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood and laid a very great heap of stones upon him. And all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. A very, very despicable burial. But having accomplished that deed, which was directly against the wishes of the king, 
the army flees to their tents awaiting the king's response to the death of his son. Now in all of this, as with everything, there's a gospel message. First, in this scenario, David represents God. Secondly, the rebellious Absalom initially, as we've already determined, represents Adam who rebelled against the kingship of the Lord desiring to be his God. Number three, we see Absalom riding on a mule, which seems to represent judgeship, even though it was not a full-bred donkey, in the same way that Adam decided that he could judge between right and wrong better than God, and of course he could not. Number four, in the same way that Absalom corrupted and deceived the people into following him instead of the legitimate king David, so too did Adam, by his corruption, by his deception, by his sin, deceive the people into following him, the Adamic nature, instead of following Christ. Number five, David's desire to spare Absalom out of a fatherly love for him is akin to God's fatherly love for Adam, since God refers to Adam as the son of God in Luke's genealogy, and he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and yet that is what righteousness does demand. The sixth point, Absalom's rebellion warranted his being cursed in the same way that Adam's rebellion warranted him to be cursed as well. And finally, I believe the three darts that Joab pierced Absalom's heart with are symbolic as well. Now, Solomon might have been reflecting upon this because what he says to his own sons in Proverbs twenty-three twenty-six is, my son, notice what he doesn't say in this point. He doesn't say in verse 26, my son, obey my commandments, although he says that in other places. He knows that if he has the heart of the son, he will have the obedience of the son. So he says, my son, give me thine heart. Absalom's heart was not with his father. So it was Absalom's heart that was defective and rebellious. The dart symbolized death by the law in the same way that the Israelites were to be killed with darts if they were to touch Mount Sinai, symbolic of the law's condemning power. The fact that there were three darts, not two, not ten, but three, may symbolize that since Absalom wanted to be king in the same way that Adam wanted to be his God, there was the perfect number here in the number three, symbolizing the triune God. In other words, anyone who seeks to be his God will be destroyed by God and made a curse as a result. And finally, the fact that Job was the one who pierced Absalom's heart with the three dots leads us to the conclusion that Job may very well have been a representation of the condemning power of the law. Since there is no mercy in the law, Joab is a perfect fit. Joab's ten armor bearers then signify that the death of Absalom was complete. That number ten always symbolizes the number of completeness. But there's one other aspect to this scenario. If Absalom symbolizes the first Adam, does his destruction also point to the last Adam? Is there a connection? In other words, are there similarities between Absalom's situation and Christ? Remember, they're very much connected. Adam and Christ, the first Adam, the last Adam. Now, beyond the obvious that they were both cursed and hung on a tree, remember the scripture makes mention that Absalom's head was what was caught in the tree. The idea of headship is always important in scripture. And this is why Jesus' head was crowned with thorns symbolizing the curse. 
And when Adam sinned, thorns and thistles sprang up upon the earth, defiling it and ruining the present garden that God created. And so we can see a connection here between Christ and the situation with Absalom and the connection between Adam and Absalom as well. One final thought. As we shall see, David's reaction to his son's death is symbolic of the reaction of the father's to both Adam and Christ, because both were his sons. We shall return to this sad event next when we continue in our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.